Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. After a couple of quiet weeks at the court, we're in the home stretch with opinions starting to come out fast and furiously. GC, how many opinions are we still waiting on for the court to decide? We're still waiting on 29, and usually they finish up by the end of June, early July, so uh, it's going to be breakneck speed. All right. Well, I know we had several opinions come out this week, uh, so you're ready to uh, to talk about those and uh, some of the orders that came down? Absolutely. I'll start off with orders. We got big news on the abortion front. After passing this case off from conference to conference for months, leading to speculation that uh, the court was going to deny taking the case and that people were writing fiery dissents, the court has actually agreed to hear Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. The only question the court will consider is the following, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. The Mississippi law at issue here bans abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy, with some exceptions, and viability typically occurs around 24 weeks. Will the court overturn Roe v. Wade and return abortion policy back to the states? If so, will it do so entirely or just in part? Impossible to say at this point, but my guess is that we're most likely to see the court chip away at Roe and permit the states to impose restrictions on some form of abortions, such as sex-selective abortions, even before viability, but they probably aren't going to return abortion policy entirely to the democratic process, at least not yet. Personally, I don't see Justice Kavanaugh making such a big move, and we have yet no clear sense of whether Justice Barrett favors the Roberts-Kavanaugh incremental approach or the Thomas Gorsuch let's-just-get-it-right approach. Well, I know this one will certainly be watched very closely by many, many people uh, when it comes up next term. GC, we had four opinions come down earlier this week, so I'll get things started with the opinion in Edwards v. Vinoy. This was a 6-3 opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, uh, where he was joined by the Chief Justice and Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett. And in this case, the court held that the new rule of criminal procedure requiring jury unanimity for conviction of a serious offense, uh, which, as you may recall, the court established last term in the Ramos v. Louisiana case, uh, does not apply retroactively to overturn convictions on federal collateral review. Justice Kavanaugh emphasized that the new rule requiring jury unanimity was procedural and not substantive, and that therefore it did not qualify for the, quote, watershed exception, which would allow it to be applied retroactively. He added that no new rule of criminal procedure can satisfy the watershed exception. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, concurred. In his view, the court could also have resolved the case under the text of the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 because the Louisiana court's decision to deny relief was not, quote, contrary to or involved in unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court. Justice Gorsuch, joined by Justice Thomas, concurred to emphasize that the court has effectively abandoned the watershed test because it poses a question that the court has no business asking. 
Justice Kagan, joined by Justices Breyer and Sotomayor, dissented, arguing that the court should not abandon the watershed exception and that the rule that the court announced in Ramos should apply retroactively. Next up is BP versus Baltimore. This is a very technical uh, procedural case, and before explaining it, you have to understand what removal and remand are. If a plaintiff files a case in state court, a defendant can automatically remove that case to the local federal district court if the defendant thinks the federal court has jurisdiction. If, however, upon receiving the case, the federal court disagrees, it will remand the case back to state court. Now, in almost all circumstances, that remand order can't be appealed, but there are two statutory exceptions if the basis for removal was that the case involved a claim against a federal official or a member of the military. But then the question is, if you have a case with multiple grounds for removal, only one of which is that the case involves a claim against a federal official, and the district court rejects them all and remands the case, can you appeal the whole remand order or just the part pertaining to the claim against the federal official? In a 7-1 opinion by Justice Gorsuch, the court held that the plain language of the statute applies to the whole remand order. Justice Sotomayor was the lone dissenter, making the policy argument that under the majority's approach, the exception may swallow the rule. It was 7-1 because Justice Alito did not participate. Next up, we have the case of Coniglia v. Strom. This was a unanimous opinion by Justice Thomas, where the court held that the police may not conduct a warrantless search of your home or seize your property from within your home pursuant to the so-called community caretaking exception that was first articulated by the court in the 1973 case of Katie v. Dombrowski. Here, the plaintiff, Edward Coniglia, had a domestic dispute with his wife where he placed a gun on the table and told his wife to, quote, shoot me now and get it over with. The wife left, but asked the police to check on him the next day when she couldn't get in touch with him. The police went inside his house and convinced him to come with them for a psychiatric evaluation, but only after they promised that they wouldn't take his guns. As soon as he left, however, they entered his home and confiscated his firearms. He later sued, arguing that the search and seizure violated the Fourth Amendment. The police argued that Katie meant they didn't need a warrant. In that case, the Katie case, the court held that police can conduct a warrantless search of a car in police custody to locate and secure firearms. The court rejected this extension of Katie into the home, saying, quote, what is reasonable for vehicles is different from what is reasonable for homes. A few justices concurred to clarify when police can enter the home without a warrant, for example, to assist injured parties, to check on an elderly resident who hasn't been seen or heard from in days, and to prevent a potential suicide. Last up, we had CIC Services versus the IRS. This was also a unanimous opinion by Justice Kagan and a stinging rebuke to the IRS for trying to shirk its responsibilities under the Administrative Procedure Act. What happened is this. The IRS issued a notice that told tax advisors like the plaintiff here that if they don't disclose information about certain insurance agreements, they are subject to criminal prosecution and, key to this case, civil tax penalties. The plaintiff sued to block the IRS from enforcing that notice on the grounds that the IRS issued it without the notice and comment period required by the Administrative Procedure Act. The IRS responded by saying, you can't sue us to block the notice because of the Anti-Injunction Act, which says you cannot bring a lawsuit for the purpose of restraining tax collection. The notice can be enforced with civil tax penalties. So by suing to block the notice, you're actually trying to restrain tax collection. 
If that argument strikes you as an absurd way of trying to avoid complying with the Administrative Procedure Act, you're in good company because all nine justices thought so too. The court said that the suit's purpose is to set aside a reporting requirement, not a tax. The takeaway is the IRS tried to avoid complying with the Administrative Procedure Act by attaching a tax penalty to a reporting requirement, but the court, thankfully, wasn't having it. That ends it for opinions today, and next up is our interview with D.C. Circuit Court Judge Raymond Randolph. We're pleased to be joined today by the Honorable Raymond Randolph, who currently serves as a senior judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He was appointed to the court in 1990 by President George H.W. Bush and assumed senior status in 2008. Prior to joining the D.C. Circuit, Judge Randolph served in a variety of roles in both government and private practice, including as Deputy U.S. Solicitor General and as Special Counsel for the Committee on Standards and Official Conduct of the U.S. House of Representatives. He received his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania, where he graduated first in his class, and he served as a law clerk to Judge Henry Friendly on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Judge Randolph, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And to start off with, uh, what made you want to be a lawyer, Judge? Well, uh, I worked during the summers at General Motors in uh, Trenton, New Jersey. And uh, one summer coming back, I I was uh, assigned to the Labor Relations Department and I started investigating grievances and questioning some of the workers and um, also started reading a, a, a a reminiscence of uh, Felix Frankfurter. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I, I had designs on being an engineer, but that I enjoyed the uh, enjoyed this much more the investigation and the questioning and the bargaining and everything else. So that you know, a year later, I decided to apply to law school. Great. And now you attended law school at the University of Pennsylvania, right? Right. Uh, and I understand that while you were in law school, you would commute between uh, in the summer between Philadelphia and New York City. Could you tell us a little bit about that and why you did that? Yeah, I did that one summer um, because I wanted to be close to Philadelphia because our law review, I was appointed managing editor of the law review, and I, they were four or five months behind. The, the uh, November issue would come out sometime in January or February. So I, over the summer, I decided that I was going to get the uh, get them on schedule. But the only way to do that, if I, would, I had an offer from Sullivan and Cromwell on Wall Street in New York, was to uh, commute. So I got on this rickety old train at the crack of dawn every day and went up and it always broke down in Princeton, I think, and no air conditioning, terrible. And, and then would hustle home at night and then uh, you know, be able to at least uh, get some uh, work done on the law review. I was somewhat of an insomniac back, back then, which uh, gave me a tremendous advantage. So. <laughs> now, you are from New Jersey originally, uh, Judge, and I understand there's a, a Randolph family connection to New Jersey and to Princeton. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, my on the Randolph side of the family, the uh, earliest American, uh, uh, Edward uh, Fitz Randolph. Fitz, by the way, in, uh, in England at that time was short for son of. 
Um, the family dropped that the fifths at some time in the 1700s, but no. So um, he came to Plymouth in 1630, built the 39th house, and married Elizabeth Blossom. And they eventually moved to Piscataway, and uh, his uh, grandson, Edward, uh, was named Nathaniel Randolph, and he was quite well off. And he uh, dedicated the land and raised the money to found Princeton University. Oh, wow. And I think it was 1753. There are other things uh, in uh, Benjamin Randolph in, in Philadelphia, where the family uh, you know, kind of migrated between Philadelphia and Piscataway, New Jersey. But uh, Benjamin Randolph was uh, the, one of the closest friends of Thomas Jefferson. And he was a carpenter, uh, a cabinet maker, very famous. And Jefferson, when he came uh, to uh, the Continental Congress, would, would uh, stay with Benjamin Randolph. And together, they devised this laptop, probably the first laptop desk, so that Jefferson would have something to write on when he came from uh, <laughs> Virginia in carriage. And on that desk, which uh, my ancestor uh, made, uh, Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence. Wow. That is that is quite a uh, <laughs> a family yeah. connection, Judge. Uh, now, and I understand too, your your family has a, a connection to Princeton as well, and the founding of Princeton. C- could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. It, well, Nathaniel, there, there's a gate at Princeton. It's called the uh, Nathaniel. Uh, Fitz Randolph Gate, and uh, I think it was erected in 1905 by one of the ancestors. And um, but anyway, there was also a myth that uh, it turned out to be a myth that, that when when Nathaniel Randolph gave the uh, money and the land to Princeton, he put in his will that all Randolph descendants of his would be able to go to Princeton uh, free of charge and be automatically admitted. And unfortunately, I found out later that that was not true. <laughs> it would have been nice if it hadn't uh, turned out to be a myth. <laughs> Quite. Uh, well, I, I understand after you went to law school at University of Pennsylvania, you clerked for the renowned judge, Henry Friendly, on the Second Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. How did that come about, Judge Randolph? Well, I'm not really sure. I, I applied to him. And I applied to Harold Leventhal on the D.C. Circuit and Carl McGowan. And I think they were the only three judges I applied to. Um, but, but anyway, I got a phone call from Henry Fundley, and, and, uh, and he hired me. And uh, he hired two clerks each year at, at that time. I later found out that, that at some kind of a gathering, whether it was a seminar or a social gathering, that two of the professors at Penn that Friendly thought highly of, one was Tony Amsterdam and the other uh, was Paul Mishkin. That, um, and they, that, that if they both recommended somebody, then Friendly uh, told them he would hire him. So apparently they both recommended me and that's how it came about. Excellent. What was it like to clerk for Judge Friendly? You know, my friend Mike Boudin clerked for uh, Judge Friendly, as did Pierre Laval and, and Merrick Garland and John Roberts in different years. But I think we all agreed that after clerking uh, for Friendly for a year, it was impossible to be intellectually intimidated by anybody else. I mean, he was just <laughs> amazing. You were working with a genius. And he did all the um, opinions himself. And 
I guess uh, several of us have commented that uh, in, during our year of clerking, we never saw him spend more than uh, one day writing an opinion. And, wow. and they, he'd do it in longhand. He didn't have a computer, obviously, and, and didn't have a law library, much of a law library, except in his chambers. He hardly ever left. And some of these opinions would be 25, 30, 40 pages long. It was uh, just quite amazing. The job of the law clerk supposedly was to improve his draft, which is often quite difficult uh, to do. <laughs> he often said to us, to myself and Monty Gray, who was my law, uh, co-law clerk, that any time he let a uh, law clerk uh, do a draft of an opinion, he always got into trouble. And, and so anyway, at the end, at the end of my clerkship, he, he, he said, why don't you try your hand at doing a draft of this case? I still remember it was one of these draft dodger cases, Coppa Bianco versus Laird. And, and so I did the draft and, and he was the editor and he hardly changed anything. So I go to the solicitor general's office right after my clerkship with him as a result of his recommendation, by the way. And um, we have a meeting every Friday uh, in the Solicitor General's office to decide what cases to take up to the Supreme Court. And I'm sitting in the meeting, and one of the uh, deputy SGs at the time said, look, there's this terrible opinion in, uh, out of the Second Circuit. I think we got a petition for cert. It was Kappa Bianco. I said, oh, God, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> they didn't. Well, well, good, good. Yeah. Uh, did Judge Friendly have any special traditions uh, that he maintained with his clerks? We had uh, yearly uh, dinners at the Century Association in New York with a gigantic round table, and um, they were they were really fun. And and we'd just go we'd go around, and everybody could say whatever they wanted, tell what they had been up to for the year, and so on and so forth. I don't think of any other. Well, and I have heard you mention it before, Judge. A, a funny story with uh, Judge Friendly when he couldn't find an appendix when he was on the uh, bench one day at one sitting. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind uh, sharing that story with us uh, here today as well? Oh, yeah, it's a wonderful story. It's really a, kind of a nightmare. Um, <laughs> the, the law clerks in in those days, Friendly thought it was pretty much a waste of time for the law clerks to attend the argument, so we wouldn't. And he had this a circular um, library that's uh, a, a round thing, and you twirl it around, and, and he puts all the briefs and the appendices for the week on there. And the law clerk's job was to pull off the day's uh, briefs and appendices and, and, and take them down and put them on the bench for him. So I, I did that and went back to the chambers and was working on the, trying to improve one of his opinions. And and I got a phone call and later found out this is what happened, that, that there was a young lady from the New York uh, Attorney General's office start arguing a case and Friendly was presiding and wouldn't let her get a word and he started uh, berating her for not, for, not, uh, for not including an appendix in her uh, brief for the state of New York. <laughs> and um, so anyway, th this apparently went on for uh, quite some time. And, uh, you know, he'd say, don't you know the rules of federal appellate procedure, blah, blah, blah. And, and so finally she got a word and she said, but judge, I did file an appendix. 
And so Judge Friendly then lit into the clerk of the court who was in the well, Danny Fasaro, and says, what's the matter with this clerk's office? They are inefficient, blah, blah, blah. And, and so Danny uh, apparently was panicked by this and, and called for the records. And, and he said, Judge, we have the records here, and it was delivered to your chambers. <laughs> and so then I got this phone call from Danny Fasaro, uh, the clerk, and he said, you know, where's the appendix? We delivered it. And I said, listen, I pulled everything off that circular uh, uh, bookcase that the judge friendly had. And he said, well, go check. And I said, all right, ch- I'll check. So I went in and it was empty. But as I'm leaving uh, the, the inner office, I, I see a little piece of white paper peering out from the bottom underneath the book, uh, the bookcase. And lo and behold, it was the appendix. So, uh, I got back on the phone with Danny. I said, you know, I've, I found it. You can come get it. And he said, I'm not getting it. You bring it down. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. And, uh, anyway, the, but nothing ever came of it. And it was quite an embarrassment to me. And we, Judge Friendly and I had a laugh over it actually later. (laughs) Well, it makes for a great story now. (laughs) Uh, Now, I know you mentioned after you clerked for Judge Friendly that you joined the Solicitor General's office, and I know you joined it as an assistant under uh, Robert Bork, and that while you were there... No, 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 no. I I joined Erwin Griswold, the former dean of the Harvard Law School, was the Solicitor General back in 1970 when I uh, went to the office. What's and the key? reason I went to the office is because uh, Judge Friendly, you know, I halfway or more through the uh, clerkship said, what are you going to do next year? And I said, I don't know. I don't want to clerk anymore. And he said, well, if you don't want to do that, why don't you, if you, why don't you argue cases in the Supreme Court? And I said, how am I going to do that? He said, I'll call Irwin. So he, Griswold was a year um, behind Henry Friendly in, the, in Harvard Law School and you know, next thing I know, I'm 26 years old and I'm heading for the SG's office. Never argued a case before or briefed a case or anything else. Well, what was that experience like for you at the SG's office? Well, it was intimidating, uh, that's for sure. And um, I had no idea how to argue a case or how to write a brief or anything else. As a matter of fact, uh, they didn't even have an office for me when I arrived. And they put me up in uh, some kind of <laughs> FBI file room. Um, and Erwin Griswold found me on the sixth floor, the SG's office on the fifth floor, and he threw down a pile of papers uh, and, and so on, and he said, if I don't get a satisfactory brief out of you in nine days, I'm confessing error in this case. I said, oh, my God, this is my first <laughs> brief. I guess this is the way they do it, and I started working. I wrote the brief. I thought it was a pretty good brief. Um, he didn't confess error, and, but the case is Bivens versus six unknown named agents of the Federal Bureau <laughs> of Narcotics, which established wow. the proposition you can get damages for first Fourth Amendment violations. And so that was my beginning. Um, but anyway, it, it was uh, it was interesting. Um, the first argument I had was in the case called a, well, it doesn't matter what the case is, but but. Um, you know, and I was nervous as can be, and Griswold yeah. gave me one piece of advice, which was uh, slow down in in speaking. And somebody else gave me another piece of advice, which was a, probably one of the worst pieces of advice I ever had. And they said, <laughs> just be yourself. <laughs> and why was that and, bad advice, and, Judge? Well, it, it didn't tell me which one. 
<laughs> and what do you mean by that? Be yourself, but which one? <laughs> now, I, you mentioned that, that you initially were put in an FBI uh, file room. And so I understand uh, whether it was that office or another office, you had a couple of interesting uh, neighbors or office mates while you're at the S SG's office, uh, including J. Edgar Hoover and uh, William Winquist while he was at OLC. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about what it was like to be uh, office neighbors <laughs> with J. Edgar Hoover and William Rehnquist? Well, I moved down to the fifth floor, and the fifth floor on one corner has the attorney general's office. On the other corner is the solicitor general's office. And, and immediately down the hall from me used to be the FBI before they got their own building. Bill Rehnquist was around in between the solicitor general and, and the uh, – uh, attorney general on, on Constitution Avenue. And the reason for that was that was where the Office of Legal Counsel wound up. But the Office of Legal Counsel used to be part of the Solicitor General's office. And so when they split it off, they didn't split the, the offices. But anyway, so Hoover, I used to get in fairly early and would keep my door open and J. Edgar Hoover would walk by every morning because he was going down the hall to the attorney general's office and ha had a meeting every morning with John Mitchell, I guess, who was the attorney general mm. at the time. And um, he, he would uh, stop at my office and look in and, and say, you know, good morning. And I would say, you know, good morning, Mr. Director. And then he would just <laughs> walk on by and and uh, and return. So anyway, I thought it'd be great fun if um, to pull a little uh, prank. <laughs> and I saw this advertisement for a fake marijuana plant in the uh, New Yorker magazine, which I was reading in those days. And I ordered it. And it was just quite remarkable. It was at these blueberries. <laughs> I never saw a marijuana plant. And um, and it was very realistic. And, and so, of course, I put it next to my open door and wondered if J. Edgar Hoover would get the joke. And he, for three mornings in a row, he walked by and he stand stood right next to the marijuana plant, and would say, <laughs> "You know, good morning," and then go on by. <laughs> so, one of the messengers who became a very good friend of mine, Jerome Brown, quite an extraordinary guy, no college education, but uh, eventually became head of the computers, or the tech guy for the SJ's office because he put himself in night school. But anyway, Jerome comes waltzing into my office with a pile of, uh, in his hand of briefs that for, to write oppositions. And he walks by the marijuana plant and the briefs go flying. Says, my God, you've got a pot plant here. <laughs> <laughs> so he spotted the, the fake marijuana plant, but not, yeah. uh, but not J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> right. Uh, they, they, had, they had a party for uh, Jerome. Ted Olson, when Ted Olson was Solicitor General, he forced me to tell. I came back and he forced me to tell that story. So, <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great story. <laughs> now, now I understand uh, that one of your colleagues at the SG's office was Louis Claiborne, who is also a full English barrister, and that one day you and Louis tried to uh, pull another prank on uh, Chief Justice Warren Burger. Uh, could you tell us about right, that? Right. Yeah, I met Louis first when I first came to the office in 1970 because uh, his sister, a very prominent in Louisiana New Orleans family, his sister was Liz Claiborne, who was a fashion designer. I didn't know that at the time. 
But uh, Louis kept telling me that he wanted to move to England. They, he should have been born there, and he had a Welsh wife, and mm. he, had, he had an affectation. He, he wore a, a sloppy uh, sport coat with a white cloth hanging out of it and all this kind of stuff. But, but he, he was a remarkable, remarkable guy. And so he left the S.G.S. I think 1971 maybe, and went to England to Wivenhoe, taught at the University of Suffolk. And it took him, I think, five years, but he ultimately became a barrister mm. in England and tried, uh, I think, 250 cases, he told me wow. once, one time. And uh, he passed away a, a while ago. But Louis was not making enough money as a barrister, so he used to come back uh, during the summertime and work in the SG's office as a part-timer and earn a few bucks and, mm. and go back to England. So he came back one summer. By the time, that time, I was a deputy SG. And he said, uh, I've got this great plan. And I said, well, that, Louis. And he said, I'm going to call the chief justice up, who was somewhat of an Anglophile, and, and uh, I'm going to ask him if it's okay if I appear, I'm going to argue this case that I'm working on in in, in October. If it's okay, if I appear in in wig and gown. <laughs> <laughs> so he I, he said, "What do you think?" I said, "Oh God, Louis, won't you do it?" <laughs> so we were together in in Louis's uh, temporary office, and he didn't have a speaker phone, but they put the you know we shared the the, the speaker on with our ears close sure. together, and he mentions that to Chief Justice Berger and there was this long pause and finally Berger said, you know, Louis, that would be fine with me, but I think it would be a distraction to my colleagues. <laughs> so please don't. <laughs> and he did. Well, I understand that when you were nominated to the bench, uh, your wife also reached out to Louis and asked him for help uh, procuring a judicial robe for you. Uh, can you tell us about that and uh, how Louis had to explain the difference between a judge's robe in England and a barrister's robe and why that yeah. difference mattered. <laughs> yeah. yeah, my wife, my dear sweet wife, Lee. Um, we, you know, we didn't know where we, you get appointed as a judge and, and where do you get a robe? I, mean, I, I didn't know. You know, Justice Scalia called me up once um, back uh, right after I was appointed and said, Hey, you know, I, I have a friend that needs a robe. Where do you get him? So at that time I, I had my robe by then. And, uh, I said, I went to the minister's store in DC. <laughs> so I, you get a black robe with floppy sleeves. That's all you need. But so my wife called Louie and, and, and Wivenhoe and she wanted to get something really nice. And she, she asked Louie, where can, if he could help her get one, and, and Louis said, "Listen, you don't understand, Lee. In, in England, you, you, these are not off the rack. You've got to go for fitting after fitting after fitting." And so, so Lee said, "Well, Louis, why? You know, black black barristers were you and Ray are about the same size. How about you send me yours, and you go buy a new one? We'll compensate you for it." And, and Louis said something to the effect, "He said, my darling, um, you don't really understand. That would be." totally inappropriate because, you know, barristers don't like to handle money fees or anything. That's a solicitor's job. And as a result of that, there's a special feature of a barrister's robe. And what it is, is there's a pouch in, in the back of the robe. And so when you finish your brief, as they used to call it, the solicitor or the client for that matter would deposit the fee in the pouch and the barrister <laughs> would never handle it. 
And, and Louis said it would be, give a terrible impression if Ray walked off the bench with one of those pouches in the back. <laughs> <laughs> so needless to say, you did not get a, a barrister's robe. <laughs> I did not get a barrister's robe. <laughs> Good. Now, I also understand uh, that Louis wrote fantastic briefs. So I wanted to ask, what made his briefs so well written? And what can the rest of us glean from them about how to write good briefs? You know, I, I, I guess get yourself educated in, in Europe um, <laughs> and, and read uh, you know, years of reading of classics and, and so on. That's part of it. But, and Louis just had this natural talent and, and a distinctive style. And um, speaking of talent, I mean, I, I call it the, uh, the Tiger Woods fallacy. And, and that is that a, a good many people, uh, not me, by the way, uh, think that if if only at five years old they started hitting golf balls and got all the lessons and the best, that they would be as good as Tiger Woods. And of course, they wouldn't because there's a, another element and it's talent. And Louie had it in droves. I mean, he was just quite extraordinary. Um, I, I don't know how uh, to describe it. I don't think he could have given a lesson because it would uh, in in writing uh, but he you know a lot of people forget what the uh, what, what the objective is in writing a brief it's not to get through it it's to persuade mm. and uh, that's an art in itself there there's a lot of studies about what the best way to do it but louis knew instinctively and did it not only in the briefs but in an oral argument which are really marvelous to listen to is just amazing mm. Now, I know you mentioned your wife, uh, and I know that she is also an accomplished lawyer and actually served as the head of the tax division at the Department of Justice during the Bush administration and argued before the Supreme Court. Uh, and right. I, know you, I know you went and watched her argument. Uh, what was that experience like for you watching her argue? It was terrible. <laughs> and why, why was it terrible? <laughs> it was terrible because uh, – before I went on the bench, you know, what I would do is in arguing cases before the, would, you know, put forth the argument and answer questions. And then as a judge, I would ask the questions. And here I was in the Supreme Court lawyers uh, area sitting on my hands and I couldn't do either one. I felt totally helpless. <laughs> and, but she was great. She won the case. <laughs> great. Great. Now, I know uh, and I think I've heard you mention before that afterwards, after seeing the Supreme Court and the argument in person, uh, that you talked to Justice Souter <laughs> about how the, the Supreme Court uh, conducts their their arguments. Uh, would you oh, mind? Uh, yeah, yeah. Would you mind telling um, us a little about that? Well, yeah, it, it really uh, shocked me. I hadn't been back to the, I hadn't read arguments, been back to the Supreme Court when when Lee argued. And that was uh, probably at least 13 years. I la my last argument in the Supreme Court was in 1990, and um, I was shocked that the uh, she my my wife stood up, Mr. Chief Justice, may I please the court? And before she got another word out, she got a question, and another question, and another question, and another question. And so her whole half hour, uh, which was allotted, was con consumed with uh, justices talking over one another and Lee trying to answer five or six questions that were hanging at once. And I just thought it was terrible that we used to be able to get an argument out. And, and so I had dinner with Justice Souter. I was 
uh, Eddie Becker was the chief judge of the Third Circuit and invited me to give a speech at the Judicial Conference. And I told him no, because I had two other speeches uh, that I wanted to do. And he said, this is my last uh, circuit conference, and it's going to be in St. Thomas. And I said, I'll be there. So we were sitting with Souter at the the, uh, table, surrounded in these round tables, surrounded the pool, and and Justice Souter started talking about I don't know what. And I said, you know, I I was back to your court uh, just a a few months ago, and and um, I got to tell you that that, uh, people just don't let the lawyers get an argument out. And you know what Souter said is. well, 95% of them aren't worth listening to anyway. And I said, how do you know? You never listen. And at that point, Eddie Becker jumped in as the, uh, you know, to separate us. It was almost like a prize fight going on or something. <laughs> so. Well, I, I, I hope the justices took your advice and, uh, and listened to yeah. the lawyers. <laughs> Actually, I've heard they have. They didn't necessarily take my advice, but I understand now, and I can't remember who told me, whoever told me this was a, was credible, is that there's now a, an unspoken rule that they allow the attorney to get whatever it is, two minutes of argument out before asking a question. Have you heard that? I, I have. I have heard something similar. And I was wondering, do you have any thoughts on the way, uh, I don't know if you've been listening to any of the Supreme Court arguments, the way they do them now in the COVID times, you know, going justice by justice versus the uh, typical free-for-all. Do you have any thoughts on uh, those different types of arguments? You know, Zach, I, I think I've listened to one and I found it awkward and sort of artificial. I understand why they're doing it this way because otherwise you might not know who's asking the question. Um, because you're not uh, familiar with the various voices of the sure. various justices, but uh, it, it, the spontaneity is um, is missing, and I think the spontaneity is what you know really made Supreme Court arguments worth doing. And uh, sure. I don't, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, a, a law school test. You know? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit. I understand that in 1979, you went to work as a special counsel uh, to what's now essentially the House Ethics Committee, and that you investigated matters related to a a South African case and to the Iranian Revolution. And so I was wondering if you could tell us what those matters involved and and what that experience was like. The Iranian thing occurred when Khomeini and his uh, uh, people uh, took over uh, or you know, or deposed the Shah in Iran, and then they took over the Iranian embassy, uh, which is a magnificent group of buildings on Massachusetts Avenue. And there was a guy um, whose name may seem familiar to you uh, if you follow these matters, but uh, there was a young guy at that time who was put in, uh, as the head of the Iranian embassy. His name was Rouhani. Mm. And uh, anyway, they. Rouhani alleged to the newspapers that he had uncovered uh, a great deal of evidence indicating that the uh, Shah and Artashar Zahidi, who was the ambassador, uh, were bribing American congressmen. And so the House Ethics Committee opened an investigation, and somehow or another I got appointed. I was in private practice as the uh, special counsel and hired staff and got offices. And, you know, we eventually 
questioned, uh, I had former FBI guys and uh, New York City homicide detectives and former reporters and uh, questioned, I think, 80, 90 uh, people who had either attended that uh, the Iranian the, the embassy used to be the social hub of Washington. Mm-hmm. Now, all these movie stars, believe it or not, I mean, and going there and so on and so forth. So we, we questioned as many people as we could and really found no evidence whatsoever of any bribery. Mm-hmm. And, and so Bob Birmingham, who was the head of foreign liaison of the FBI, and I, I went and paid a visit to Rouhani after months and months and months and depositions, uh, endless depositions. And we asked for a sit down with him and I'll never forget this. He, he, uh, I said, we finished our investigation and he said, Oh good. Uh, tell me the results. And I said, you really want to know the results now? And he said, yes. And I said, the results are you're a liar. <laughs> and, and what did and, he say to that? And there was this stunned silence and uh, Birmingham kind of kicked me. Uh, <laughs> and, and you know what Rouhani said to me? He said, yes, but it was in the interest of Allah. We picked our stuff up and walked out. Now, what about the, uh, the South African case? I know you've mentioned uh, working on uh, an investigation related to uh, something that happened in South Africa. Could you tell us about that? Well, it was the same, not the same deal, but the charge was uh, bribery of American congressmen who were invited over there by an organization that purported to be a representative of the universities of uh, South Africa, but in fact was a government front organization. South Africa had a public relations problem. They had a other problem too, right. uh, which was apartheid. And um, they were always trying to court you know, the members of Congress and persuade them that they were you know, a great country despite that. And so I went to South Africa, um, supposedly undercover, question all the uh, uh, officials all the way from this guy Rudy who ran this front organization all the way up to the prime minister and did it but uh, it was front page on the daily rand uh, two days after I arrived the uh, Bureau of State Security which is their <laughs> equivalent of the CIA um, you know leaked our sure. presence I was there with an the FBI agents yeah sure now, yeah. I gather while you were working as special counsel for that committee that you met Dick Cheney, uh, who was a young member of Congress at that time. Uh, and I've heard you tell an interesting story about something Dick Cheney told you uh, after a committee denied a subpoena request you made. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, there was a, a congressman from New York. I probably shouldn't even name him. Um, He's not not with us any longer. Who was involved with Artashar Zahidi and so on and so forth, and and uh, one of the things that I did and, and my people did was uh, subpoenaed bank records. And and what happened is uh, we uncovered uh, these pretty significant sums of money going into this congressman's bank account on a fairly regular basis, and couldn't figure out. Um, you know, what it was. And so I asked for subpoenas of the congressman and um, and to put him under oath. And he was a pal of uh, Tip O'Neill's and the, the committee was uh, majority uh, Democrat at the time. And Cheney was there and, and they kept, I, I couldn't believe it. They, I mean, every time I asked for a different subpoena relating to this congressman, they'd vote it down on a party line vote. Mm-hmm. And so I was a young Turk back then, I don't know, 32, 
two or something. I don't know. And I uh, probably showed my emotion because I kept sinking lower and lower into his chair. We're in executive session at the time. And Cheney, I was sitting next to Cheney because he was the the, uh, junior member of the Republican side. And he he said to me, uh, right, you know, don't let this bother you. In, In Congress, it's not whether you win or lose. It's how you place the blame. <laughs> Unfortunately, that seems uh, like it may be a true. true I think it was true. <laughs> uh, now, I, I also understand that in the 1980s, uh, after your work uh, as a special counsel to the committee, but before you went on the bench, uh, that while you're in private practice, you served as a special assistant attorney general for several states, uh, including New Mexico, Utah, and Montana. And that sounds very unusual uh, for someone in private practice. So can you tell us about that and what sort of matters you worked on and why you were granted that special status? Uh, yeah, I was uh, very fortunate. There. Well, uh, the, the reason I was so happy about this and I coveted it is that each one of those states has great fly fishing for trout. And so if, you, <laughs> if you're a special counsel and you go out there and, and visit, you know, you've, going to have some free time to visit the trout streams too. But the real reason is that I guess I started with Montana. They had a, a, a dispute. Um, I, I had developed a specialty in, of all things, Indian law, which mm-hmm. is one of the most complicated areas of federal law. And people just don't realize, and the Supreme Court takes a lot of Indian cases. But that was, when I was a deputy, that was one of my specialties. And um, and so Montana had a problem with the Crow Indian tribe, and I negotiated an agreement and this and that and the other thing. And then they appointed me special counsel for a bunch of other stuff. And then Utah had a problem up on the uh, Uinta and Ore Reservation, and they hired me for that. Uh, it was a boundary dispute. And then, uh, and then there was a huge uh, litigation that went on uh, in Utah for the uh, – drilling on the Navajo Indian Reservation, which was the largest at that time oil deposit outside of Prudhoe Bay. And every major oil company in the world was drilling there, and they uh, they brought a lawsuit against Utah claiming that uh, they were immune because it was on a federal Indian reservation from state severance taxes. And mm. the amount of money involved was just staggering. Mm. And so for, for the same reasons, I guess, um, I was retained to to uh, defend the state of Utah against uh, ExxonMobil. I used to be able to Phillips, uh, Shell, uh, Chevron, you know, whatever mm. it was. Now, once you're appointed to the bench, you're you're on the D.C. Circuit, which handles most of the significant cases in the areas of administrative law and national security and is often referred to as the most significant court in the country other than the Supreme Court. So what's it been like serving as a judge on the D.C. Circuit? Interesting. (laughs) How so? This is hard to describe, uh, and I don't mean to denigrate the other circuits, but the bulk, if you ever take a look at the reports of the administrative office of U.S. courts, that the what the dockets are, they have it by circuit. And you'll find that in the other circuits, uh, there's habeas corpus, there's review of benefit, uh, review board decisions, mm-hmm. there's uh, diversity of citizenship, uh, there's immigration cases and so on and so forth. And as I said, I, I, and there's also criminal appeals and so on. Um, sure. And like I said, I don't mean to denigrate the other circuits, but uh, I wouldn't want to be a judge 
there because I find all those subjects uh, fairly, fairly mundane, mundane and um, rather boring. And and uh, if you if you look at our uh, caseload, we don't have any of that. I mean, we, no diversity of citizenship to speak of. We're you know Washington's not a hub of uh, commercial activity and. Um, Habeas corpus, the only significant habeas corpus cases we've had since I've been on the bench came from Guantanamo Mm. because the uh, District of Columbia Superior Court is, in fact, a federal court. So you don't get federal habeas corpus of a state court judgment. And Social Security, I don't know. I don't remember the last time. Immigration, uh, very just a you know, just a trickle of those cases and benefits review board. We don't have them. So what's left in our docket are these uh, sometimes uh, uh, unruly or cases, huge cases that are uh, difficult to uh, decipher dealing with uh, EPA regulation of uh, clean water for the Great Lakes region or some such thing. Uh, but they're big and they're important, and they may not be the most intellectually interesting, but they certainly are challenging. And sure. I think that's the that's the reason why the D.C. Circuit is uh, considered um, important. Sure. Now, I know on the D.C. Circuit, you've served alongside many distinguished judges, including several who were later appointed to the Supreme Court, including Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, what's it been like serving uh, alongside uh, those individuals as well as your, your other colleagues? And Ruth Ginsburg. I mean, Ruth was uh, sure. on the court when I arrived. Um, well, I, the only thing I can say is that, uh, however, uh, the the, uh, the picking of Supreme Court justices is concerned, uh, they certainly pick the outstanding ones from our court. Do you have any uh, special memories of serving alongside any any of those uh, individuals? I have I have special memories of serving with Ruth because I uh, and, and you know and, and Brett Kavanaugh and, mm. and John and uh, and Clarence. But uh, there's one thing that stands out with me uh, from about Ruth, um, and I think the world of her. I, mean, I, I really do. Uh, but uh, the first time I walked out on the bench with Ruth, she was presiding. By that time, uh, she was appointed by, appointed by uh, Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and interesting story, you know, that Jimmy Carter uh, uh, had two circuit court nominees who were uh, pending at the time that he he lost the election to Ronald Reagan, and they were both confirmed after the you know lame duck session. And mm. one was Ruth Ginsburg, and the other was Steve Breyer, which mm. is interesting. Uh, but anyway, so I'd walk out on the bench with Ruth, and she was presiding in the middle, and um, she always had a folder with her. And uh, I, I noticed that, and, and during the argument, this is the first argument, um, she opened it up, and uh, she was reading fashion magazines. <laughs> during the argument? I, I think during the argument, yeah. I thought, well, that's kind of a relax. You know, I'm intense. I'm thinking, this is a, <laughs> got to read, listen to this stuff. And Ruth is, re- and then the other memory I have of Ruth is uh, sometimes she she would come off the bench and say that she was too harsh on an attorney or whatever. But uh, the other was uh, in the last sessions of our uh, term, which was used, used to be May. 
um, you'd, you'd have all these opinions backed up and so on and so forth. And, and I loved it when, when I had a week with Ruth uh, presiding because for somehow or another, every case that we heard during that uh, final week of the last uh, session before the break in the summer, uh, Ruth managed to find a way uh, to dispense with writing an opinion and just issue an order. And, and she would always say, we don't need an opinion in this case, do we? And, and the other two judges, including me, said, no. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask you, Judge Randolph, if Justice uh, Ginsburg was reading fashion magazines during oral argument, uh, was it her view that the arguments uh, just didn't matter, that she had all the information she needed from the, the briefs, or was she just uh, no, an exceptional no. multitasker? <laughs> An exceptional multitasker. I mean, we'd off the you know, get off the bench. She hasn't taken a single note. She's got the thing open to Vogue or something. I don't know. And uh, she would be in conference and say, "Well, yeah, but the attorney argued this, didn't he?" And blah, blah, you know, almost word for word. You know, it was quite a remarkable performance. <laughs> Now that you've been on the the bench a, a number of years, Judge Randolph, have you developed? Any special traditions uh, with your law clerks, uh, or do you have any special mementos in your chambers uh, that you you keep? Well, I, you know, I think everybody has mementos, and I don't know if I have any special tradition. We had a uh, a reunion party in and uh, uh, with a big tent in my backyard uh, a couple years ago, and. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the mementos I have is, uh, but I, but I don't take it into chambers, is I have the original uh, seventeen whatever it is, two volume uh, set of Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language that was presented to the you know, my clerks. It's one of my absolute wow. real treasures. It's it's just qu quite extraordinary that one human being uh, was able to put something like that together. Uh, it's just incredible. I crack it open every once in a while and um, just read the the various entries. Some of them are quite entertaining. Wow. Well, I, I have a final question for you, Judge Randolph, and it's one we ask to all of our guests. Uh, if you could have dinner with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and why? Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, I'm running through in my mind the justices that I have had dinner with. <laughs> I mentioned Souter, Ruth Ginsburg, uh, whose husband was a good friend of my wife, Lee. They were both tax lawyers. And Nina Scalia on a regular basis, Rehnquist, uh, Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, uh, Roberts. So I'll exclude all them because I've already had okay. I think uh, probably <laughs> Jackson. Um, Why is that? But not because of the Supreme Court so much, although he was a marvelous writer and he was a tax lawyer, by the way. Uh, but uh, because of his uh, prominence as the lead counsel in the Nuremberg War Trials in Germany, while he was a Supreme Court justice, by the way. Well, Judge Randolph, this has been a fascinating interview. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, you know, we hope to have you back again at some point in the future. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Zach, hearing Judge Randolph's story about threatening to wear barrister robes got me thinking about judicial outfits. So today's <laughs> trivia is all about what the justices wear. Are you ready? Hit me with it. All right. 
Number one, you are probably familiar with the famous portrait of Chief Justice John Jay in those regal red and black robes. Which Chief Justice made the switch from those robes to plain black robes, and how did he do it? Well, I think it was John Marshall, uh, who was a trendsetter in many ways, uh, and I think he just did it by just wearing a black robe. Uh, wh- That's what do you exactly say, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. It was John Marshall. Uh, when he was sworn in, he donned a plain black robe, and it immediately caught on throughout the judiciary. There was uh, Preservation Virginia, a nonprofit which owns and operates the John Marshall House, and the John Marshall Foundation actually have his last surviving robe and are trying to repair and preserve it. To that end, they established an organization called Save the Robe, and you can find out more about that at their website, savetherobe.com, if you're interested. Oh, that's very interesting. Well done, Zach. Number two. After many years of plain black robes, one chief justice decided to change it up a bit. Who was it, and how did he change it up? Well, I'm going to guess William Rehnquist, because I I know he added the gold stripes uh, to the arms of his robe, which I don't think had been done before. That is correct. He added four gold bars on the arms of his robe. A little harder now, do you know what inspired him to add those those gold bars? I do, actually. Uh, I think he had been watching a Gilbert and Sullivan opera, and one of the characters was the Lord Chancellor, and I think he, the Lord Chancellor had a very uh, elaborate robe, and so uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist decided to uh, spice up his robe a little bit. <laughs> You're right. Uh, the The opera in question was Iolanthe. Uh, a funny story about that. When asked to describe his role in presiding over uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment trial, he quoted from that same opera saying, I did nothing in particular, and I did it very well. <laughs> Uh, Clearly a Gilbert and Sullivan fan. Number four. Who produces most of the robes that the justices wear? Uh, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) It is a Salem, Virginia company called Bentley and Simon. Politico published an interesting article about the company and their robing process about 10 years ago. We'll uh, post a link to that article on Twitter. Excellent. Uh, That was interesting trivia today, GC. Well done, Zach. Three for four, and that last one was hard. So (laughs) well done. I'll take it. Thank you. And that's all we have for today. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we would appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.